Welcome to the Fight for Grade Level Reading. I'm Brian Reese. Joining Kim Doliato and I today is Elizabeth Burak. She's a senior fellow at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy's Center for Children and Families, where she directs projects focused on young children's development and has more than 15 years of experience in public policy to support low-income children and families at national and state levels. She's here today to talk about the link between a child's access to health insurance and how well they might do in school. Elizabeth, can you give us a little background on Medicaid and CHIP? Sure, and thank you so much um, for having having me and, and to talk about this important topic. So, you know, Medicaid and CHIP are major sources of health coverage for children um, in the United States. And I'm sure most of your listeners know that there's a really strong connection between education and health. When kids are healthy, they can attend school regularly, and they're able to get to class ready to learn, pay attention, and it all sort of comes together to give them a better chance at success. So um, we know that also good education correlates with better better physical and mental health when they get, get into adulthood. So Medicaid and CHIP play a really important role here by helping so many low-income children get and stay healthy. So Medicaid is an insurance program for low-income children and families created um, back in 1965. And it's a program that is funded and, and overseen by the federal government, but every state administers the Medicaid program. So you see a lot of flexibility and variability across states in terms of how Medicaid is run. Um, But the federal government picks up anywhere from 50 to 75% of the cost of healthcare for children, pregnant women, parents, people with disabilities. And then later, after the initial round of 1965 Medicaid, of course, the Affordable Care Act extended Medicaid coverage to low-income adults that are not parents as well and, and parents at higher income levels. CHIP, which is called the Children's Health Insurance Program, CHIP was created in 1997, and this was a program also funded uh, in part by the federal government and administered by states, and it was created to allow states to provide health insurance to children who were in working families, but their incomes were too high or they otherwise were ineligible for Medicaid health care coverage. So all states adopted some sort of either an extension of their Medicaid program using CHIP funding from the federal government or they have separate programs for CHIP. But that's another way it sort of sits on top of Medicaid. Together, Medicaid and CHIP serve about 46 million children. Close to 40% of all children in the United States are served by Medicaid or CHIP. And the vast majority of those kids are in Medicaid. About 37 million kids are in Medicaid. I know that the rate of school-age children being insured by one of these programs went up pretty heavily from 2009 to 2016, right? The rate of uninsurance for all children actually went down. So, right, coverage overall for children has gotten a lot better. And up until 2016, we had rates for all children and including school-age children that were much higher, higher coverage rates with Medicaid and CHIP being a big driver. So I think for all children in 2016, the rate was under 5%. 
and the rate actually, we just got new data less than two weeks ago from the Census Bureau, and for the first time since 2008 when they started really looking at this closely, we're seeing an increase in uninsurance for children, meaning fewer children have coverage between 2016 and 2017, which we can unpack a little bit, but that's really concerning because the, we've had such a success story thanks in large part to Medicaid and CHIP, getting most children in this country covered, and they certainly remain eligible. So we need to sort of understand what is it that's happening that we're now seeing more children starting in 17 return to the ranks of the uninsured. Well, can you talk to us about some of the hurdles that might be arising that are contributing to that? Sure. You know, every state, like I said, every state is, is different in how it runs its program. So the federal government sets you know, some mandatory populations like children that states need to cover, but states decide ultimately what's the income level for Medicaid and for CHIP. That that varies widely across the states. The median, I think, is 255% of the federal poverty line, about $50,000, I want to say, for a family of three. But that percentage you know, can go up to 400,000% of the poverty line in very expensive states and other states have lower than 200% of the poverty line. So it really, that varies, number one, by states and Medicaid and CHIP because states decide what their income eligibility is going to be. But states also have a lot to say about what does the enrollment process look like for kids and families and what does the renewal process. So the majority of kids who are eligible or uninsured but uh, uninsured in this country are actually eligible for Medicaid or CHIP. That means that for whatever reason, when, when the census takes its survey, some of these uninsured kids have incomes that should ha- give them Medicaid or CHIP coverage. Now, sometimes that's just this family thinks they ha- make too much to, to, to access Medicaid or CHIP. It's just not known. In other cases, it, it often it might be that the child is rolling off of coverage after a year, so maybe they don't know they need to re-enroll or they need to report changes in their income and or they've moved and they can't, uh, you know, there's not a process to find them. So I think that's the enrollment processes and the procedures in states are really come into play in terms of not only whether kids get enrolled in the first place, but do they stay enrolled over time. And as you can imagine, for very young children, when you're going to the doctor more often for well checkups, that can be really important to make sure you have continuous coverage. So a number of states, for example, have continuous coverage for at least 12 months for all children. So while their income may fluctuate throughout the year, that child gets 12 months of coverage no matter what, and then they get renewed after the year. So there are a lot of things that states that get really, really technical, but right. the states can do to streamline and remove red tape from their enrollment processes. We see some schools, uh, for instance, have gotten on board with connecting their students with healthcare services. Can you give us an example of that? Sure. I, I know that there are more and more schools that that use, that actually are funded by Medicaid to provide health services particularly for students with IEPs or special education students. And that's been going on for a while. A lot of schools are direct providers for state Medicaid programs, and they can bill Medicaid. And that's really important, particularly if those schools have to meet the special education uh, mandates and make sure these kids get what they need. But recently, a reversal of the federal rule is going to make it easier for schools to access Medicaid for services provided to any student that's Medicaid eligible. So if they're doing vision hearing screenings, if they're partnering with a 
clinic or have a school nurse that can do other kinds of screenings in the school, they can actually also bill Medicaid directly for those kinds of services. And that's a really big opportunity for states as you think about state opportunities and state options to help schools get fund some of the health services that are being provided to these low-income students that are eligible for Medicaid. Schools are also really great places to make sure kids are enrolled in and renew their Medicaid and CHIP coverage. But there there are a lot of different ways that schools, I know schools are uh, looking at providing dental services. You know, some states like Arkansas, where I came from, had mobile dental units that went around from school to school to make sure access to dental care was prioritized. More and more schools are thinking about how they can partner with the mental health community to do trauma and informed care and make sure that there are open lines of communication about the kinds of behavioral health care services that are needed and that teachers and the health care system are communicating. So there, it's really important. I think more and more we're seeing a recognition that we need to find ways to better link schools and social services and the health care system in meaningful ways, which of course is not simple, but that's a real opportunity. It, it seems like it's a no-brainer for schools because a lot of these services they're providing already and being able to bill Medicaid for those services, or at least partially, that would seem to relieve them of some of their burden. That's absolutely right, especially for schools that have a lot of low-income students that are already enrolled or eligible for Medicaid and CHIP. It, it does seem like a no-brainer. You know, there are the challenges sometimes come up with the administrative billing side of things and how, what you know, what what's schools have to do to get the capacity to bill for certain services. Also, those privacy laws for health information, educational information, how do you create, you know, contracts between schools and and agencies that make it clear that that information can be shared. But these are these are hurdles that can be that can be fixed. I mean, I think it's really ultimately about how do we get kids what they need and how do these many different types of community-based organizations and public programs work together. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's programs that are being done already that people can use as models. I mean, schools can use as models to help them through that. Exactly right. There's also some pretty innovative stuff going on with what Medicaid can cover. So, I mean, I know that New York just they debuted their first thousand days in Medicaid. I know Oregon's looking at some things. Georgia, I know, had some things going on. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those programs? Well, I think, you know, what's often... Medicaid is very different in every state, and every state sort of interprets and runs their program differently. So sometimes states might be required or think they need to be covering something, but they haven't figured out the best way to do it. I think what's happening in New York with their first 1,000 days initiative in Medicaid is they are really prioritizing young children. And while there is certainly children are required population on Medicaid, um, children make up the largest group of Medicaid beneficiaries in most states, roughly half and often more, but often because they're not the cost drivers, they're not the ones that are most expensive compared to other populations. You know, the focus is often on those populations that are that, that cost more money when they're trying to think about bottom line. But what New York is doing is really saying, we need to think about the long-term outcomes for these kids and what the Medicaid program can, and in, in partnership with the education agencies and schools and community-based organizations, how do we look together at what needs to happen for kids in the health and the education and other spaces? And they have, like Oregon and like some other states, said that school readiness is a shared goal. How do we measure each of our Medicaid contributions or doctor's contributions to the health system and education and others? How do we, how do we measure each of these 
players' contributions to the shared goal of school readiness. And so they have a very comprehensive um, recommendation strategy that was put into place and funded by their legislature. In some cases, they had to clarify billing. So, for example, they said, in Medicaid, we pay for maternal depression screening, right? Maternal depression is really big. It can, can have a really big impact on young children's social-emotional development. Definitely. They said we, Medicaid will pay for a mother's social-emotional screening. And regardless of whether a mother is in, in Medicaid or eligible for Medicaid, if a child is in Medicaid, then we can pay for parent-child therapy, for example, for sure. that mother to help with depression. We can we can pay for therapy under the child's Medicaid number. This sort of directly affects the child. That is, that's an example. Now, that's something that many would argue is already available under Medicaid, but it's, you know, state, different people interpret policy differently, and you have to sort of think about, it may not be a policy change, it's really just clarifying for for those who can bill, this is a, this is an allowable expense. Medicaid has a very comprehensive set of benefits for children. And it's much more comprehensive than the benefits um, for adults. And it sort of includes a preventive focus, you know, that Medicaid has to pay for any preventive screenings and any diagnoses and any any treatment that is deemed medically necessi- necessary to correct or ameliorate. That's what the federal law says, a condition. And so under that broad sort of benefits package under Medicaid, you know, states are thinking about how do we, you know, if we know the parent, there has a mood disorder or has something, maybe substance disorder, that can impact a child's development. How do we leverage that child's Medicaid to treat them together? And those are the kinds of things that I think we need to start thinking about and focusing on to really understand what kids need. Sometimes it's really, it's not a, even a policy change. It's really just clarifying what Medicaid will and won't pay for and what it means for child development. It seems almost as if if, if you have a, a Medicaid administration in a state that is proactive, then they can find a way to work it out through Medicaid. But if you have a Medicaid administration that is not proactive, then you're not going to find those programs. It really depends on the state. I mean, it would depend on what you're trying to do. And you do have to look at what federal statute says and what federal guidance says. So it's probably not quite that clear cut. I do think where, where we're seeing innovative things, particularly for young children, and to really try to prevent some of these complications that can make learning and other things harder down the line, we're seeing an explicit prioritized focus on kids or young children. And that's what's unique. Um, It may be that states have done innovative things. A lot of states, you know, I think in the last year, uh, we just saw a survey that came out that 11 states were doing um, maternal depression screening under a child's Medicaid number two years ago. And in the last year now, more than half of the states are doing that. That's great. (laughs) That's a really important um, step forward. Part of that is because federal guidance said, hey, the law allows this. Right. So it signaled the states it was allowable. Sometimes it's about prioritizing it. Sometimes it's about you're spending a lot of money and there are a lot. It's a very, very big and complex program. And so states want to do the right thing by that. So sometimes when the federal government signals something's allowable or it always has been, you know, it's, it takes a little bit of the state interpretation out of it and they can sort of go forward. So it's 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 all really complex. I think sure. it's fun. Um, saying that everyone says about Medicaid is you've seen one state Medicaid program, you've seen one state Medicaid program, and (laughs) that's absolutely right. But it's true. I think that the more we can do to prioritize children in Medicaid, even though they're not, you're not going to see savings in Medicaid over two years like you might with other populations because they're just not, they don't cost as much. Mm -hmm. But you could really see big bang for your buck 10, 20 years down the line. Right. In these states where they're doing innovative things, 
Are you seeing that it's mostly driven by the state or is it driven by uh, public-private partnerships or, you know, wh- why is that coming about, do you think? A little bit of both. I think for young children, particularly in, this, uh, in the space of children before they're entering school, which of course we know has it makes a difference for their school readiness, sometimes it's propelled by public-private partnerships. So, for example, South Carolina has a waiver in Medicaid to use Medicaid to fund home visiting programs. Medicaid funds home visiting services or programs in most states in some way. But South Carolina has a waiver that allows an entire type of program to be funded by Medicaid. Hmm. And this started by some investment by the private sector to show a return on investment. I think what's compelling and where I think Medicaid agencies are starting to to take notice or or governors or other leaders is that the brain science is so clear. Hmm. And I know the early education community is known for many years how important that brain research is. And I think it's taking that a step further and saying, how does the health system play a role here? And and as big and as complicated as Medicaid is, it serves the uh, you know, most low-income kids in this country. And for children under, under six, it serves four out of five of them. So it is a place before kids enter school where we can use Medicaid and CHIP to sort of think about what, how do we redesign what pediatric practice looks like? How do we look differently at how kids get connected, not only to their health services, but to their social services? And we know that social determinants of health, for example, are a bigger impact, have a bigger impact even than health inputs early in life. So how do we make sure that we're connecting them to social services and making sure they have nutritious food? And what's the role of the pediatric or health practice or health system in that. And that's part of this conversation, too, is sort of how do we both innovate and also fund things that we know should be happening for kids, like are all kids getting their well-child visits, are all children getting developmental screenings so we can catch things early. And so it's both innovation and prioritizing, but also just trying to find out what are the data telling us and how do we make sure we're getting what we need, the basics of what we need in the health system. Right. So, Elizabeth, what do you think the future of these safety net programs, Medicaid and CHIP, looks like? Do you expect a shift? Uh, Well, one thing we know is that more and more in Medicaid and CHIP, kids and other populations are in managed care. So this is the Medicaid agency in the state giving money to private insurance companies to essentially run Medicaid plans. They get sort of a, a, a in most cases, um, a risk-based or a capitated fee, and then they get, they can take home the savings or they, you know, they only have so much money they can spend. This is a really important shift. And I think there's a lot of potential for that. But I think what's been challenging about looking at managed care with Medicaid is a lack of transparent data on exactly what's happening with kids and families. So I think the opportunity to really understand is managed care in Medicaid or anywhere, but definitely in Medicaid serving children is uh, much more transparency and consistency of data across plans, across states, and trying to make that a little more uniform. And ideally in a consumer facing way so that families can look at, let's say, Medicaid managed care plans and say, what is, what's going to do? What do we think is going to perform best for my child? So that's what I think a lot of the focus in right now. For once we get kids enrolled and in the program, what are they getting? Are they getting those comprehensive services they need? And what do we need to be doing to, to hold everyone accountable for that work? The other piece about Medicaid is I think that at the federal level, it's been under threat. During the ACA repeals last year, Mm -hmm. and depending on the election outcome this year, we could see it again. You know, Medicaid is a popular target for cuts. And 
while it is a large healthcare program and healthcare program healthcare of course costs are growing, Medicaid actually is but one player in the health system and actually while a public program its its costs are not growing nearly the rate of of, of private health care. So it's actually quite lean when you look at what it's paying for um, in terms of state medical assistance to different beneficiaries. So the different proposals at the federal level have been to block grant Medicaid, to cap its financing. Um, right now, it's an open financing structure. If, it, if an eligible person in a state, deemed eligible by the state, walks in the door, the federal government is going to pay their share mm-hmm. un, on an uncapped basis. And that's really important because if there are disaster strikes like a hurricane or the economy tanks, the federal dollar is there for states as they deal with the impact of new treatments or disaster or trying to treat meet the health care needs that are very unpredictable of their population. And so I think that's the big federal conversation right now is what happens if there are more proposals to dramatically cut and cap the Medicaid program, that would really tie the state's hands as they try to meet the health care needs of their population. So all this innovation, innovative stuff going on for kids is really important, but it could make it much harder if the program is dramatically cut. Right. The other piece of this at the state level, of course, is the Medicaid expansion of the ACA. So the Affordable Care Act once the Supreme Court weighed in, essentially gave states the option to extend Medicaid coverage to adults just above the poverty line, about 138% of the poverty line. And in many states, particularly for parents, um, this is important because for states that haven't expanded Medicaid or even before Medicaid expanded, you saw eligibility for parents in Medicaid at half the poverty line, 50% or less, in a lot of cases less. And so for states that haven't adopted this Medicaid expansion, these are parents of a lot of these kids that don't have health care. And when those parents come in the door, their kids get enrolled if they're not already enrolled, and they're all more likely to get the care they need right. because everyone they're more there's more exposure to the health care system and familiarity with it. So the states that have lower, for the most part, lower uninsured rates for kids are often states that have expanded Medicaid. So that's another factor here for states that haven't done it. It's a real opportunity to reach more kids. And I think particularly for young kids, but it's true for all kids, a healthy parent is really important to a healthy kid. You know, the relationship building and the interactions that young children especially have with their parents matters. And so it matters for their, their parent. I'm certainly a better parent when right. I'm healthy. <laughs> so that's something we're kind of taking a closer look at as well and, and really can impact um, where kids go. Elizabeth Barak, thank you so much for sharing your enormous breadth of knowledge on the topic with us. And thanks so much for all the hard work you do at Georgetown. You're so welcome, and we really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Thanks. Next week, we'll be talking to Dr. Michelle Borba, a former teacher and author of several books, including Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. We'll talk to her about the importance of empathy and why it's a learned trait. Now, a final thought. Although we may dread doing laundry, clean clothes are something that many of us take for granted. For low-income kids, a lack of clean clothes can cause school absences, social stigma, and serious stress. That's why a simple program like Care Counts can have a big impact on some children's lives. Participating schools receive a washer and dryer from Whirlpool and supplies from Procter & Gamble. Parents and kids are free to do their laundry on school property when they need to. Not only did the program reduce absenteeism by nearly two days a month for high-risk students, it also encouraged more engagement with parents, 
who use the free time between loads of laundry to volunteer in their children's class or interact with teachers. So here's your homework. Simple needs like clean clothes are often overlooked when working with at-risk families, even though they might have a surprisingly big impact on those families' lives. Think about the people your programs serve and identify similar needs that fly under the radar. Sometimes the simple things can vastly improve someone's quality of life. Remember, you can find us online at heraldtribune.com slash fight for GLR or on Facebook at facebook.com slash fight for GLR. You can also email us at fightforglr at heraldtribune.com. Talk to you next week. Joining us today is Elizabeth Burak. You just said it the Did wrong I way. Did I say it the wrong way? That's Burak. It's kind of, it's like Burr, I'm cold, act. Right. Yeah, um, it's and pretty this easy. When you get I'm married just... to a Polish guy who chopped off the Akowski. Burak. So. <laughs> <laughs> Burakowski would be easier. <laughs> yeah. All right. So sorry. Here we are again. <laughs>